First of all, thank you for taking the interview. I know for everyone with four-legged babies, we really appreciate you taking this time to talk to us about everything you do that maybe, maybe, maybe is translational down to those we love that bark. So talk to me a little bit about what are you doing in your own home with everything that you know and you have learned and you've applied to your father, to you, to, to everyone in your home, what are you applying to your dogs? Well, uh, so what we do in my family is we, uh, and dogs included, we we try to stay as lean and healthy as possible. So we don't overfeed our pets and we don't overfeed ourselves. Uh, we try to exercise a lot. So our dogs are taken on walks quite a lot out back, back here's 100 acres of woods. And uh, mostly that's my wife, Sandra, who does that. Uh, I'm usually at the computer. In case people didn't, read your book, which I have to just do a shameless plug. If you have not read this amazing book from Dr. David Sinclair, who I'm interviewing now, he is a professor of genetics at Harvard Medical School. He runs a longevity lab there. I could only imagine that you made discoveries and then in turn wanted to tell the world. But tell me the backstory about the culmination of why you decided to write the book. Uh, well, I wanted to write the book mainly because there, there are so many exciting things happening in this field. And uh, I would go around the country giving talks uh, as a scientist, and we were all very excited about the progress. But then when I would talk to people who are not scientists, uh, they would never have heard of what we were doing for over 20 years, and uh, including things that people can do right now for themselves and their pets. And these are some lifestyle changes and perhaps some of these molecules. Um, but I just wanted people to know how far we've come. We're way beyond the days of antioxidants, that they didn't work out that well. But we really have a grasp. And what I put in the book is a new understanding of why we actually age. Uh, I think we may have a, a finally an understanding of what's going on. And once you understand what's going on, you can actually uh, treat it. And it might turn out that aging is simpler than, than even treating cancer. Uh, and that's what I think is the future. You say that aging is a disease and that there's nothing wrong with treating the hallmarks of disease. Uh, to guide interventions, which of course, um, I'm a proactive veterinarian. So this is my entire 25 year practice is helping my clients identify lifestyle obstacles before disease occurs. So when I read your book, not only did it resonate with me, I'm like, oh my gosh, we need this in veterinary medicine. So it's fantastic that you're already thinking about that. But what you say is, is that there's nothing wrong with using the hallmarks of disease to guide interventions because interventions slow down deterioration, of course. But we're still building all sorts of dams trying to stop the process when really we could consider building one dam. Could you go on to do a little bit of explanation about what exactly that means and what's that one dam? Yeah. Well, yeah, you won't find it, this in any other book because it's brand new and it's popped out of my head. Um, and so there are hallmarks of aging that occur in all animals. And these are things like uh, zombie cells accumulating and loss of stem cells and mitochondria, the power packs of cells decline in their function. But those are all tributaries. And is there a, a, a spring that feeds all of those? And instead of building nine dams on those nine tributaries, we could find one solution to all of it. And what my lab has been working on, but keeping secret for 10 years now, is the uh, evidence that there is one cause of aging that's more important than all of those. 
And what it is, is it's a loss of information in the body. Now, that, that might sound strange. What kind of information are you talking about, Dr. Sinclair? Well, what I mean by that is there, are, there is information in our body, and it's encoded two different ways. So there's one type, which we all know about. That's our genome, our DNA. And that's a very good store of information. It's digital information, A, T, C, G, instead of binary code. But there's software on top of that that tells the cell which genes to read. And that's what's important for us to have nerve cells that are different than skin cells and different than eye, eye cells. And so these are the what we call the epigenome is the other type of information in the cell that is the software. And so what we've said is that the information theory of aging I've proposed is that loss of this epigenetic information is what drives all of the diseases of aging, uh, including aging itself. Then there's things we can do to actually influence it. We can, we can make cognitive shifts in our behavior and our diet and our lifestyle to actually influence that, those pathways. And talk a little bit about from the research you've acquired from your own lab, what changes are you making in your life, maybe your dog's life, to shift that? I have discovered or co-discovered these genetic pathways that control the aging process. They're called longevity genes. And they respond to perceived adversity in the body or threats to survival. And so uh, these longevity genes, some of them, we call them uh, sirtuins. And sirtuins are activated by a variety of things, so being hungry, uh, having low amounts of amino acids or protein, activated by uh, running on a treadmill or getting your getting out of breath. Uh, and those are the main things. There are some other things that I'm exploring, such as being hot and being cold. But basically what we do in our family and what um, we found extends lifespan is to trick the body into thinking times are tough and turn on these sirtuin genetic protectors of the body that slow down aging. And when we do that in mice, we, we get that to see that they can live a lot longer. Uh, and we think the same is true in our bodies. And we all know that being healthy, dieting, exercise is good for you. And now I think we understand why. Despite the fact that we've done a lot of damage by, bre by breeding brother and sister and father and daughter, mother, son, that there is this influence of nutrigenomics and epigenetics that can actually make a difference. That even if you get a, a poorly bred dog, that there's the potential to influence them with lifestyle. So how hopeful are you that poorly bred dogs or dogs that have some genetic flaws, how much are we capable as pet parents, as dog owners, to actually environmentally, nutritionally, supplementally, what can we do to actually influence that? Because I was taught in vet school, now this is 25 years ago, but I was taught in vet school, it's genetic, there's nothing you can do. Is that true? No, uh, and I'm a geneticist, so I'm gonna be the first to try and defend the power of genetics. But to health, life, and longevity, actually only 20%, at least in humans, only 20% is due to genetics. And the rest, the 80%, is epigenetics, how you live your life and how those genes are turned on and off. And so a lot of it, um, the vast majority of longevity is environmental. 
And so what are some basic things that you would recommend that all of us be doing on a daily basis to epigenetically influence our pets for the for the best? Uh, well, first of all, the, the, the simplest thing is just uh, don't overfeed and don't constantly feed. Um, it's okay to be hungry, okay? It, it's not cruel. It's actually, it's, actually uh, it's kind in the long run. Um, and But it turns out, actually, let me just pause on that. Uh, my friend Rafael de Cabo at NIH, uh, the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, he did an interesting experiment on inbred mice. So these inbred mice are about as bad as inbred dogs, okay? So you, they need our help. And what he found was that after mixing different amounts of uh, protein and fat and carbohydrate, trying to find what's the best diet for a mammal, it turns out it didn't make any difference to these animals. It only mattered when he gave them the food. And if he gave them the food just in a small restricted time and then took it away, they lived a lot longer rather than just letting the animals nibble throughout the night. And I think that tells us a lot about our pets and our own lifestyles. So there's a lot to be said about fasting uh, and about what the body does in terms of reparative mechanisms during fasting. And dogs are, of course, ideally designed to fast. It's just humans have a hard time we believe food is love. So in treating constantly and leaving a bowl of food done all the time, we just think it's it's terrible to not do that. But what you're saying is that everything you've learned in your lab goes back to restricting calories is a very kind thing. It is. And, and obesity in animals uh, is increasing rapidly. It's actually identical. It's a, it's identical. 60% of North Americans are overweight or obese and 60% of dogs and cats are as well. Yeah. Yeah, if we feed our mice a Western diet and make them fat, they live 40% less long. Um, it's, it's tragic. So for dogs, if you or what you would apply to your dogs, exercise the heck out of them. Keep them lean, fit, well-muscled. Other suggestions that you would do, just common sense things you would do to help the body do what it can in terms of slowing down the aging process? Any other tips? Uh, well, um, yeah, just make sure your, your pet... Uh, loses his or her breath. It's not enough to just walk slowly, we find. You really have to at least have five minutes, maybe 10 minutes even better, of breathlessness in, in mice, in humans, and presumably our pets as well. So let them run after a bowl. Don't just keep them on a leash the whole day. Uh, that's, a, I think, a good tip. One of the things that I like to do to myself, and uh, you know, we can talk about whether it's appropriate for animals, you're, you're the veterinarian, is that uh, being cold or hot is actually not too bad. Now, it's not, you don't want to overheat or overchill your pet, and uh, you know I'm not suggesting that. But being out in the cold, you know, in a Canadian winter for a little bit, may help uh, stimulate the metabolism, get some brown fat going, and that turns out to be have potential health benefits as well. It's interesting. So many people now, because dogs have gone from kind of dog houses outside to in our house to wearing sweaters with a whole array of different clothing to in our beds, to being thermally balanced at between you know 68 and 72 degrees all the time. We don't give our pets a chance to want to experience climactic changes. And a lot of dogs choose, a lot of dogs will choose to stay outside and people have to go get them, bring them in because they, I think that they want to experience those changes in temperature, but their owners don't want them to. So this is fantastic advice that let your dog have an opportunity to not wear boots, touch their feet to snow and cold 
do heart thumping aerobic really intense exercise in that weather kind of as nature intended hmm. yeah that makes a lot of sense and if if owners just did that i think their dogs could live a few years longer. What do you think? Yeah, I, I absolutely do. And that's probably the biggest thing about your book that was inspiring to me is that even though the clock is ticking for all of us, it doesn't necessarily mean that degeneration is unavoidable. And I think that that's a really inspiring thing that you have done by writing this book. My goal is to have uh, our family members, whether they've got two legs or four, uh, to live life maximally and spend the last part of their life because we're all going to die but that last part uh, might die much more quickly and painlessly than we currently experience well i commend and appreciate and i'm so thankful that that is your goal i oftentimes say happy 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 dead because i was taught in vet school that there's going to be this clear delineation where halfway through life our body falls apart we get organ disease our muscle tone goes away we get some diagnosis of heinous debilitating disease cancer organ failure whatever and then we just have this low slow lingering death that is not enjoyable and quality of life is stripped from us. And what your research is clearly showing is that doesn't have to be the case. Yeah, it's really a message of hope. Um, yeah, the book Lifespan is is really to, to sh tell everybody that their life and their pets' lives are largely in their, their own hands. If you just know a little bit about the science and follow the things that I and my colleagues have discovered over the last 25 years, um, you know, it's, it's inspiring. It, it means that uh, we don't have to live the life that we thought we did. Yeah. And we're also not victims of our genetics. Of course, genetics play into it. But there's so much we can do to modulate our DNA that we don't have to be victims. Uh, and our pets don't have to be victims. So I appreciate you working on mice. I appreciate you applying your knowledge, research, and science to dogs and cats. Um, we're really looking forward to what the next decade or two has for you out of your lab, because what that means is all of us benefit, including our furry family members. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. Well, you're welcome. Thank you for having me on. This was great.